it is a great joy that we have the opportunity to be together this morning. And even if we have to do it virtually, it's exciting that we come together around God's Word. And uh, as we come around God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, one of the most familiar sections of our New Testament, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And while you're turning there, I just want to express my gratitude for the team uh, that worked very hard to pull this uh, opportunity together so that we could meet virtually this morning. Uh, as you know, we had to postpone our, our normal gathering because of the weather. And I've come to, to learn some things through this experience. And so let me just share two thoughts with you as, uh, as you open your Bible and we get ready to uh, look at this text together. Number one, I'm so thankful for technology. I'm thankful that we have the opportunity that maybe even 30 years ago we wouldn't have had. And we can still meet together. We can still worship together. We can still hear the word of God together. And I'm thankful for the team every week that makes it possible. We, we have a number of folks every week that uh, listen in and join us virtually. And I'm thankful for the hard work that goes uh, into this. And as I've been here this morning getting ready, I have a new appreciation for that. And I just want to publicly affirm all of the folks that work so hard behind the scenes, either to set up our, our Sunday morning worship or to work with the technology or any other area. I'm just gaining a new appreciation for what goes in uh, to pulling off our, our time together on Sunday morning. So appreciation number one is for the technology that makes this possible and for the people that work behind the scenes to make this possible. And then appreciation number two is the fact that virtually every Sunday, with rare exception like the one we're in now, we get to get together. We get to be together as a church. I miss that. I miss the singing this morning. I miss the face-to-face the -face contact. I miss uh, the greetings that so many uh, of you share with me. And uh, as I watch you share with each other, there, there's nothing that replaces the fellowship of the body. And I can't wait till next Sunday till we're all together again and uh, looking forward to that and, and trusting that God will help us. And as we worship together this morning virtually, I just want you to take a moment and thank God for the body of Christ and for the fellowship that we enjoy. And let's not ever take that for granted. You know, as I thought about our time together this morning and uh, what we're going through uh, as a nation, what maybe some of you are going through as a family, what you may be going through as an individual. I know what I'm going through as a pastor. Uh, we need the Lord. And, and one of the ways in which we show our dependence on the Lord is through our prayer. And I've been thinking a lot about prayer. Uh, we talked about prayer earlier as we got through our Armor of God series. And probably the message on prayer got the most comments of any message that I preached in that series. And I know it resonated in my own heart. And so as I began thinking, even at the start of the year, how do we go forward as a church? How do we express our dependence on the Lord, even as individual believers and as families? Prayer always comes to the center. And I think if I'm being transparent with you this morning, and I think you would probably agree with me, that, that if I had to pick an area of my spiritual life that I wish could be more conformed to Christ, more energized by his spirit, more transformed by his word, it would have to be my prayer life. I heard somebody say uh, something many years ago that has stuck with me over the years. In fact, I've written it down. 
And, and, and this individual was actually talking about prayer. And he said this. He said, I want to pray in a way that displays to me that Jesus is evidently present and actively involved in my life. I want to pray in a way that reveals, that, that, that sort of exposes what's really going on in my heart. And what I want my heart to reveal is that, that as I pray, Jesus is evidently present and actively involved in my life. And I also want to pray in a way that's effective. You know, when you uh, get to the end of the book of James, there's an amazing story. As we get into James later this year, we're going to come to that passage. But there's an amazing story about an Old Testament individual named Elijah. And when you start reading about Elijah, and you start thinking about all the miracles that Elijah did and all that went on in his life. He seems almost like this distant person, not just distant chronologically, separated by thousands of years, but really even distant spiritually. We, we would never, ever think we could ever attain to the kind of miracle and spiritual work that Elijah was privileged to do for the Lord. But James wants you to know something. James wants you to know that Elijah was a man just like you and just like me. He was an individual with like passions. And then James says this, he prayed effectively. The effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much. So here's my question for us as a church. How do we pray effectual prayers? We all pray. There's no question about that. You pray, I pray, and we, and we pray repeatedly. We're going to see that Jesus addresses this in this text. But how do we pray effectual prayers? Not just fervent prayers, not just faithful prayers, not just repeated prayers. How do we pray effectually before the Lord? And so this morning we're coming to a portion of Scripture where the Lord Jesus Christ takes the men that are going to change the world and he teaches them an important lesson about prayer. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to sit in the school of prayer that Jesus initiated in this passage, and I want to listen in to what he teaches the disciples. Because as we listen in to the lessons that Jesus is about to teach, I believe that they have transformative power in our own praying. And if we will listen and learn as the master teacher teaches us how to pray, it may affect more than you think. Can you imagine if your prayer life was radically reoriented this year? What impact that would have on your own spiritual life? What impact that would have on your marriage? What impact would it have on your family or your extended family? Or what impact would it have on the way you're investing your life? What impact would it have in, in the, the body of Christ where, where God is located you? I can't think of something more important this morning to consider than the power of prayer and, and asking God to teach us in a way that reorients the way that we pray. And so I want us to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 6. We began reading in verse 5, and we came all the way down uh, to uh, the end of uh, verse 13. And we began to hear and listen to something Jesus was teaching in the middle of the most familiar sermon ever preached. That sermon begins in Matthew chapter 5, and it ends in Matthew chapter 7. 
It, it is the only full sermon that we have uh, uh, from the Lord. We have a lot of his teachings. Like, for example, we have, a, uh, we have the parables that he taught. Uh, we have a lot of the sayings that he uttered. We, we get to listen in to numbers of times when he is teaching uh, publicly or even in the private conversations in John 14, 15, and 16. But when it comes to an actual sermon that Jesus preached, there is only one full sermon that we have, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And right in the middle of that sermon, he teaches his disciples an important lesson about prayer. And so let's begin noticing how the Lord uh, teaches them. Uh, and the first thing I want you to notice is that in verse 9, he lays out a pattern which ought to shape our praying. There's a pattern here. And, and this pattern didn't come out of nowhere. There's, there's a context for all of this, and there's a purpose for all of this. And so as you kind of look at this text, and you look at what Jesus is actually doing here, there has actually been a lot of praying going on. Let me give you some examples of this. I want you to notice that there's a group of people in verse 5 who have been praying. And they've been praying a lot. And Jesus says, now when you pray, don't pray like they pray. And he identifies them as hypocrites. He said, when, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And, and here's what happens when they pray. They pray like this. They love to stand and they love to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. So, so there's a context here of prayer. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, I'm giving you a pattern, and this pattern is coming out of a context in which you are looking at a certain kind of praying. You are looking at very religious and very pious people who love to pray. And when they pray, they stand up on the street corners, or they stand up in the synagogues, and they pray these incredibly beautiful prayers, but they have a reason for doing it, and their reason is not to be heard by God. Their reason is to be seen by men. They want to be perceived as people of prayer. And Jesus said, now when you pray, don't pray like that. So that's one context in which this pattern is coming. And then he goes on, and he starts talking about uh, in, in another segment, in verse 7, he said, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So there are hypocrites, religious hypocrites who are praying, and then there are pagan Gentiles who are praying to their gods. And when they pray to their gods, they, they actually are desperate for their gods to engage, and, and, they, and because they aren't getting some kind of response from their gods, they feel like we just need to heap up words. And if we can just heap up enough words, if we can just say enough prayers and, and mount, you know, sort of build a prayer mountain out of those words, maybe our gods will take notice, maybe our gods will be pleased, maybe our gods will finally hear and respond. And Jesus said to his disciples, now when you pray, don't pray like that. Don't pray like people who don't know God or who don't have any relationship to him. And then if you stop and think about it, it's not just the, the hypocrites that were praying, and, and it's not just the pagans who were doing a lot of praying. The disciples themselves were doing a lot of praying. 
If you were a godly Jew, if you were a follower of Jehovah in, in the days of Jesus, your life was intersected by regular moments and regular times and regular seasons of prayer. You had a, 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 a season uh, regularly throughout your year where you made three trips down to Jerusalem to, to offer sacrifices to the Lord, to celebrate feasts together. And those feasts and those weeks were peppered by, by religious thinking, religious talking, and by praying and praising and celebrating in temple worship. And then beyond those three seasons every year, there were regular times in your life when you had seasons of prayer. You, you would have that every Sabbath day on the seventh day of the week. And then throughout your day, every day, a good Jew would at least pray three times. There would be morning prayers, there would be uh, noon prayers, and there would be evening prayers. And so your life was a, a life that was lived in the context of a lot of praying. If you stop and think about it, that's very similar to how most of us live. If you stop and think about how your day goes, most of you who are worshiping together this morning in, 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 uh, in this format, in our, in our virtual service this morning, have already prayed today. You prayed when you got up. Maybe you prayed as you got out of bed. You certainly prayed as you had breakfast this morning. If you did your time with the Lord this morning already, there was probably a season of prayer that was involved in that. Most of us pray when we get up. Most of us pray when we go to bed at night. Many of us pray before each meal. When we start something, we, we pray. Already this morning, we had a word of prayer. As we finish our time together, we're going to conclude our time with a word of prayer. Prayer is a bigger part of most of our lives than we actually think about. If you just start adding up the number of times you pray in an average week, it might surprise you how much praying is actually happening in your life. So here are the disciples, and they're listening to Jesus, and, and Jesus is saying to them, now when you pray, don't pray like the religious hypocrite who's trying to impress people, and don't pray, pray like the pagans who don't know God and don't have a relationship with God and are trying desperately to get his attention and, and to impress him. But they're praying these disciples a lot, and there's somebody else that is praying. In Luke, the disciples have just heard Jesus pray. And the minute they heard Jesus pray, they realized this man, when he prays, God hears him. There's an instinctive knowledge that when Jesus talked to his father, his father heard and responded. And his disciples are saying to Jesus, we want to know how to pray like that. That's how we want to know. Remember what I said at the very beginning? I want to pray in a way that displays God's evident presence and his active engagement in my life. And when Jesus prayed, and we have occasions in our New Testament where we see Jesus pray. And when Jesus prayed, it's an amazing thing. You always know when Jesus is praying that God is listening and that God isn't just being passive as he hears these words. There is this intimate presence. There is this active engagement in everything that is being articulated by the Son as it reaches the ear and the heart of the Father. And the disciples instinctively know that and they say to Jesus, we want to know how to pray like that. And Jesus says to them, all right, when you pray, 
pray like this. And he gives them a pattern. So this pattern comes out of a context of prayer, but it, but it also orients our thinking about the purpose of praying. Pray this way. When you think about a pattern, a pattern is there to kind of help you shape something. And so when you come to this prayer, this prayer is not intended to be sort of like a magical formula that you just repeat over and over and over. And if you can just repeat it enough times, then maybe God will listen and respond. That's not the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, when you think about the, this prayer, it's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord never prayed this prayer. He actually taught his disciples to pray this prayer, and it's intended to be a pattern that helps us to think through our conversations with God that we have on a constant basis. It deals with the subject of our praying. It deals with the person to whom we pray for. And so this pattern is in our Bible to help us understand that there is a way in which we can pray where we will see God actively engaged and personally present with us as we pray the kind of prayers that Elijah prayed and that James describes in James chapter 1 as the effectual fervent praying of a righteous man. And the first part of that is coming to grips with the idea that Jesus is giving us a pattern that ought to shape the way we pray. And then the second thing that you see here in this text is not just a pattern that, that should shape the way we think about praying. There is a person that is identified to whom we pray. And Jesus says it this way. He says uh, in verse 9, pray then like this. And the first thing he says is stunning. Now, you know the first thing he says, because whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer, these are the first two words that come out of your mouth. And we have been thinking and praying this way for so long that it almost just kind of goes right over our head. But if you were listening in, like the disciples were, these two words would have been completely stunning to you. And the two words are this, Our Father. Our Father. So let's talk about those two words. These two words identify who we're actually praying to. When you open your mouth, and sometimes our prayers don't even come out of our mouth, do they? Sometimes we're just we're just walking along, or maybe we're driving along, or maybe we're lying in our bed, and, and something just overwhelms us, and our heart cries out to God. And there's someone at the other end of all of that to whom our praying is directed. And, and Jesus says to his disciples, when you direct your prayer, you are directing your prayer to God. And the relationship that you have to him isn't like the relationship that the Gentiles have to their gods. It's, it's not even like the relationship that all of the created beings of the universe, like the angelic hosts, have to him. When you pray to God, you are praying to someone who has an intimate relationship with you. What's stunning about that text to me is the word our. Because Jesus has been praying throughout the Gospels and he talks to his father, my father. Or he addresses him directly as father. And here he is, he's looking at these men and he's saying, my father is actually our father. And, and, and you're to pray to him like I pray to him. There isn't this distant theological sort of uh, 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 
chasm between you and him. He is our father. And so when you direct your praying, direct your praying to him. Now, I think it's interesting, and maybe we should just take a moment here to, to, to talk about the exclusivity of this. When we pray, there is an exclusivity about who we pray to. And who we pray to in the Bible is the Trinity. Sometimes we pray to God the Father. Sometimes we address God the Son. Sometimes we address God the Spirit. But there is a boundary to whom we pray. Let me, let me give you an example. We don't pray to pagan idols. We just don't pray to pagan idols. When, when Jesus established his pattern, he says, this is who you pray to, and he addresses deity. He addresses a member of the Trinity. We don't pray, for example, to other humans. We don't address our praying to other human beings, no matter how holy or how righteous they appear to be. I mean, can you think of a group of people who regularly pray to other human beings? We can ask others to pray with us. We can ask others to pray for us. But Jesus is here, boundering off prayer, and he is saying, you direct prayer to the, to the Trinity. You, you direct praying to God. You don't pray to other humans. You don't pray to angelic beings. You don't pray to members of Jesus' earthly family. Can you think of a member of Jesus' earthly family that millions of people around the globe pray to regularly? And Jesus is saying that is not a proper object of praying. When Jesus gives you the pattern for praying, he is intending for that pattern to actually impact the way you pray and one of the main things that he does right away is he directs you to whom you should be praying. And he says, now the person that you're praying to is God. And in this case, you are praying to our Father. And then he tells you a little bit about who our Father is. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father is sitting on a throne. And from that throne, he is governing everything that happens in the universe. He has the authority and he has the ability to do anything that we are asking him about. So whatever it is we're praying for, or whatever's going on in our praying that we are desperately needing God's presence and God's engagement is, we are praying to someone who is sitting on a throne who has the authority and the ability to grant whatever it is that we're asking for. This is an amazing thing that we draw out of this pattern and, and sort of out of this text that sort of gives us some ideas about praying. So there is a pattern that shapes our praying. There is the person to whom we pray. And then number three, there is a set of priorities that Jesus lays out for his disciples, which ought to govern our praying. It's like Jesus says to his disciples, okay, now I'm going to teach you how to pray. I'm going to give you a pattern that's going to frame up the way you pray. And then I want to remind you at the very beginning to whom you're praying, who you're directing all of this praying to, and the relationship that you have, the stunning relationship that you have to him. You are praying to someone who delights in you. You're praying to someone who has a, a deep, intimate relationship with you. You're praying to our Father. You're praying to someone who loves you, who, who sustains you, who's, who's vested in you. You're praying to a person who has the affinity and, and, and the affection for you. And not only does he have affinity and affection for you, he also has authority and ability to do whatever needs to be done 
that you're asking him to do. So when you come into the presence of our Father, what should you talk about? When, when you want to have a conversation with our Father, and that conversation is daily and, and many times during the day, what is it that our Father want, wants to talk about? When, when you come to God and you're lifting up your heart and your, your voice in prayer, what are the things that, you, that should occupy the conversation? And Jesus said, let me give you three major priorities that God is eternally interested in. And when you come before our Father, and you want to have a conversation with Him, these are the things that should be governing, and, and that should be filling up the conversation. When you come to God, these are the things. Whatever you're talking about, and, and whatever the content of your praying is, these are the things that should occupy and shape that praying. And here's the first one. God is immensely interested in the exaltation of his name. God is immensely interested in the exaltation of his name. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is intensely interested that people come to write conclusions about who he is and what he is like. That's the idea behind the word name. When you think of the word name in this text, in this prayer, it's not just a nomenclature. In the Bible, when you gave somebody a name, it reflected something about their character. And, and that's certainly true about God. When you go and you study the Old Testament in particular, there are different names by which God is known, and each one of those names is intended to get you thinking about some aspect of God. And God is intensely interested that the world come to know the truth about who he is and what he's like. There's an ancient enemy of God who has been hard at work making sure the world either doesn't believe in the existence of God or if they do believe in the existence of God, they come to horrifically wrong conclusions about who he is and what he's really like. And, and so God is deeply vested in, in this enterprise and this enterprise is that his name be known. And that he be known and recognized and worshipped for who he is and for what he is truly like. Think about how often we come to God and we start talking to God. And as we listen to our own praying, as we evaluate what we have been saying, how often do we spend an entire prayer time with God and we have never been concerned about the fact that God's main concern is that his name be exalted. That people in this world know who he is and what he is really like. And so Jesus said, when you come and you have a conversation with our Father, our Father has invited you to come into the throne room of grace and to make your requests and petitions known. But as you do that, remember that our Father has a priority that should shape even how you do that. And, and the first priority is this. We pray for the exaltation of his name, that people would know his righteous name. And then he says this, pray for the exaltation of his name, but pray for the establishment of his kingdom. Pray for the establishment of his authority on earth. Notice the next thing, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. If you go all the way back to Psalm 2, 
This is an amazing psalm that lays out God's plan for the ages. And in Psalm 2, God is addressing the kings of the earth, and he is basically saying to them, I have chosen a king, and I have established him on my holy mountain, and all of you need to kiss the sun before he becomes angry with you. And as you open up Psalm 2, the nations and the leaders of those nations are enraged by this. They are absolutely livid with anger, and they are determined to cast all restraint off that God intends to put upon them, and they certainly are not eager to submit to his instruction about submitting to, that's the idea behind kissing the sun, submitting to the sun. And so the entire story of the Old Testament is about one nation that God has established and a king that he is putting over that nation. And by the time you get to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has appeared on the scene and he has been announcing, he has been preaching the news, the good news, the gospel of that kingdom. And by the time you get to Revelation 11, here's what John wrote in that chapter. He said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of that son. You have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness as a believer, and you have been placed into the kingdom of that son. You are a citizen of a kingdom that is coming. You have a vested interest in expanding the news of that kingdom and going into the kingdom of darkness with the gospel that brought you out of that kingdom and delivered you out of that kingdom and translated you, just like Colossians talks about, translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. And as you pray to the Father, God is intensely interested in that kingdom. How much of our praying is about that kingdom? I have to say most of my praying is about my little kingdom. I have a little kingdom, and it's got stuff that really matters to me. And I think you probably have a little kingdom of your own, and there's things that matter to you in that kingdom. And sometimes we get so consumed with getting God to line up to do the stuff we want done in our little kingdom that we don't even stop and think about the fact that God is on a massive mission to redeem and restore people and take them out of the kingdom of darkness and put them into this glorious kingdom of the sun. How much of our praying is really about that kingdom? Jesus said, I want you to pray this way. When you pray, pray to our Father who has the affinity and he has this affection for you and he has the ability and he has the authority to do what you're asking. But how much of your praying is really about the things that really matter to him? The exaltation of his name, the establishment and the extension of his kingdom. And, and then he says this, pray for the execution of his will. Notice how he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, God has a will. There, there is this eternal will, the decisions that he makes about life. These are the decrees of God. These are things that happen because in, in the overarching plan of God, he, he has planned the way that we live. We, we talk about this in, in the word providence. Everything that has happened in 2019 and in 2020 and in 2021 didn't take God by surprise. They weren't outside. All of those events weren't outside of God's providential control. And so as we pray and, and as we are invited to come in and express our hearts to God and we ask him to change things, 
that are going on in our nation and to change things that are going on in our world and to change things that are going on in our lives. We have to remember that as we pray, we need to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm praying and asking for these things, but I'm really asking for your will to be done. Because you are the God of providence. And then there are things that God has revealed clearly in his word. The moral will of God, the ethical will of God that he wants done. There are no questions about that. God help me to live in line with those directly revealed uh, patterns of behavior. Your will as you wrote it down. And then there is uh, our own personal will. God, what do you want me to do this year? And so how much of our praying is, and I'm saying this about myself, how much of our praying is praying that is more about God getting in line to do my will than, than, than me getting in line to do God's will. And I think that's why we have this amazing phrase at the end of verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a place in the universe where God sits. And in that place, everything is being done according to God's will. And, and, and Jesus is saying, when you pray, you need to pray that just like God's will is being done in heaven, it needs to be done on earth. And how many times do we, as I said a moment ago, look at prayer as a way to get God to do our will instead of Prayer being the way in which God lines us up to do his will. So that's a very important part of what Jesus is teaching. Remember we said it was a pattern? Well, this is, this is sort of shaping the content and the orientation of our praying. How different would our praying be in 2022 as a church? How different would it be as, as a family? How different would it be for me as an individual believer if I were governed by praying that God's name would be exalted? And that God's kingdom would be extended. And, and that God's will would be done on earth just like it is being done in heaven. And that brings us to the fourth thing in the pattern. And, and the fourth thing is this. There are petitions in this pattern that Jesus introduces and says now that your praying has been oriented around the right priorities. You're going to need things. And as you have need of these things, don't hesitate to come to God and ask for them. As you are living out your life so that God's name will be exalted and known, so that people around you will know who God is and what he is like, people in your neighborhood, people around you, people in your circle of friends, people at, at your job, as you live for the exaltation of God's name, as you live and engage in the, uh, in the extension of God's kingdom, as you take the gospel to people around you, as you strive to do the will of God, there are things that you are going to need to accomplish those amazing priorities. And so this is the fourth thing that Jesus teaches in the prayer. There are petitions that we are to come to God and ask for. And petition number one is daily provision. God, as I do your will, as I extend your kingdom, as I share the gospel or take the gospel, as I exalt your name, I need Daily provision in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. This is an interesting term. Daily bread is, is the idea that most people in the first century that would have been listening to this sermon lived from day to day. They didn't have large savings account. There, there wasn't a, a sort of a, all of the government programs that we enjoy here in, in, in our country. There just wasn't any of that. 
And so basically, the average person listening to this lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples would have got up every day, gone to work, made enough money that day to buy their bread for that day. The word bread here isn't just talking about physical bread. It's the idea of using that term to talk about whatever you need for that day. Sometimes, uh, I remember as a kid uh, growing up and, and people would talk about, do you have any bread? And, and they were actually talking about money. How much bread do you have? And they're talking about money. And they were using money, they were using the word bread sort of as a stand-in for money. And that's the idea here. Jesus is saying, you come to God as you're living out these priorities in your life, and you ask him for what you need. So, so maybe you need tires on your car. Or maybe you need a replacement vehicle. Or, or maybe there's a repair that needs to happen on your house. Or maybe it is actual food that you need to feed your family or clothing. And, and God is saying, as you live out your life, and as you give yourself to these massive priorities that matter to God, you come to God every day and you say, God, as I exalt your name, and as I extend your kingdom, and as I do your will on earth, I need daily bread. And we do, don't we? I mean, you need it as a person. Your family needs it. My family needs it. We need it as a church. I mean, every week, we, you know, we live week by week dependent on God providing for our needs. And we ask God for those needs. And then he moves in your heart. And he moves in many of you to give beyond your capacity. Some of you have, have very limited capacity to give. And, and God touches you. God moves in your heart. And, and he, his spirit energizes you to give. And then we show a number on Sunday. And oftentimes that number is just there. And, and we, we don't really see behind that number the immense thing that God did in so many of our hearts and in so many of our lives so that we could do that. God is giving to Palmetto Baptist Church our daily bread. And he's doing it through you. And he's going to provide daily bread for you. He's going to do it in your family. He's, he knows what your needs are. He knows that your kids need shoes. He knows that you need food. He knows about the health insurance issue that's going on. He knows about the medical crisis that you're facing. He knows how many miles are on your car and, and how bald your, your, tire, your tires are. He knows those things. And Jesus said, now when you pray... And you're coming to God and you're talking to him about these incredible priorities. You also need to come and you need to talk to him about the daily needs that you have. So we're invited to come and pray for daily provision. And then we're invited to come and pray for pardon, for forgiveness. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Some of your translations would say the word trespasses. When we stepped over the line, as we have also forgiven our debtors. You know, as we uh, live our lives and as we go about our daily lives, there are so many places where we are going to step over God's lines. And I'm so thankful that we have been clothed in righteousness and that the righteousness that Jesus Christ imputed to us is unassailable. We will never stand before the Lord to give answer for the guilt and the wrath that was rightly upon us that Jesus took in our place. He has imputed a righteousness to us that will never, never be taken away from us. He has established a peace, as we saw 
in our study through the book of Ephesians. But you and I both know, even as we stand in that glorious place, as we have our movement throughout life, we are going to step over God's lines. Sometimes we do it unintentionally. Sometimes it's a moment when we're overwhelmed by a temptation. Sometimes we actually do it intentionally. We're going to rub up against another member in the body of Christ, and, and there's going to be an offense. There's going to be some area, either in our thought or in our speech or in our deed, where we didn't live up to God's expectations. When we actually, on a personal level, did not do some aspect of God's work. And Jesus says, now here's what you do when that happens. You come to God, and you tell Him, and you confess, and you ask God to forgive, and you ask God to cleanse, and He does. This is an amazing invitation. I mean, think about this. The book of Hebrews says that when we stand before God, we are naked. There is nothing hidden before him. He knows everything. I mean, the, the greatest example that I know of this is in, in Genesis when, when Adam and Eve sinned and immediately they ran and they hid and they tried to cover and, and God goes on a search for them. And it's not because God was trying to find them. God knew exactly where they were. It's not like God was saying, you know, I lost my first man and my first woman. I gotta go find them. He knew exactly where they were. The idea behind the search is there is an intentional seeking of God, and he's gonna seek out his beloved creature. You know, when you and I sin and we fail to do some aspect of God's will, it can almost be overwhelming. It can almost come to the place where we don't even know how to make our way forward. We feel like we have so shamed the name of God and we have, we have so betrayed the kingdom and we've, we've acted like the kingdom of darkness. and We haven't done his will and it's almost like it crushes us and Jesus says, just like you come to God when you're under the crushing weight of need for daily bread, you come to God when you're under the crushing weight of guilt that's already been paid for. This has already been covered. Whatever it is that you're about to confess to God and talk to God about, he already knows. And he's already taken care of it. It's already been dealt with. And so that's why this prayer is so liberating. He's saying to every one of us in the moment of our failures, we come to you and we confess and we ask forgiveness and we ask for cleansing and we ask for restoration and God grants it to us just like he grants our daily bread. You and I, for all of our life, have been experiencing day after day, daily bread that comes from God. Most of us have not missed too many meals. We may not have known exactly where they've come from, or, or, or there's been some bill and we didn't know how we were going to pay, and, and, and God either gave us more work to do, or somehow he supplied. God has been in the business for most of our lives of showing us daily bread, and making sure we get it. Well, he also has been in the business of giving us daily parts. And he never runs out. It's not like we're going to exhaust the bank, or it's not like God is going to say to us, now this is the third time this month we've talked about this. It, it isn't the way that Jesus is presenting this. He is saying, listen, as you live out God's big priorities, you're going to need daily provision, and there are going to be times when you're going to need daily pardon. Not just with God, but with one another. And then notice the final thing in the text, and that is this. You're going to need daily protection. 
Notice what he says in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is not talking here about God tempting you to sin. The word temptation here is actually the word for trial or test. I mean, think about how many times God allowed his people to go through seasons of testing. Earlier on in this very book that we're in, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, after the baptism of Jesus, and in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus himself went into a season of testing. And Jesus, having gone through that season of testing, is looking at his disciples and he is saying to his disciples, as you pray about God's big purposes, you pray for your daily needs, you pray for daily pardon, but it is entirely appropriate for you to pray and ask God to deliver you from any testing. And that's exactly what we find Jesus doing on the last night of his life as he is pouring his heart out to God, knowing that the next day he is going to be executed in the most painful and horrific way and shameful way. And he says to his father, Lord, Father, if there is any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then Jesus says this, you pray for deliverance from testing, but you make sure to add to that that you be delivered from the evil one. Because the evil one will always come in a season of testing to try to distract you from something God has called you to do. To try to distance you from people that God has called you to do it with. Or to try to divide you or discourage you or actually cause you to stumble or sin. These periods of testing that God intends to use to build us are the very things that Satan would love to take advantage of to bring about great harm or discouragement to your life. And so as you head into a season of testing, and you know that life is about testing. We've had it in 2021. We're going to have it again in 2022. And God, as you introduce those seasons of testing into our life, deliver us from the evil one. So how do we know that God can do this? Well, some of you have... Um, a King James Bible, and the prayer ends this way, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And that may not be in, in some of the versions, but the ideas are all in the Gospels. God has the, the ability, he has the authority. Thine is the kingdom. He has the, the ability. Thine is the power, and he has the heart to do this. Thine is the glory. In light of your attributes and your authority, and in light of your ability, God, we are confident that as we live for the exaltation of your name and the extension of your kingdom, the advancement of your kingdom, and the doing of your will, you can provide our daily bread. You can take care of the times we step over and fail to do your will. And you can deliver us from temptation or protect us from the evil one. I want to end with this story that um, is hypothetical. And you'll see why in just a minute. Um, I have two children, and you, you've had the opportunity as a congregation to get to know my daughter, but you haven't really had the opportunity to get to know my son. My son has been a great delight to his mother and I, and we are so thankful uh, for him and, and for Ashton. But when my, my son was growing up, uh, there would be regular times when he would come to me, and he would ask me uh, for a conversation. And I learned to listen really carefully for how that request started. If he said, hey, dad, I knew that what was coming was just going to be some kind of a normal conversation. 
We might be talking about, you know, something that was going on or something that interested him or something he'd observed. But if the conversation started this way, if the conversation said, say that, then I knew that there was going to be a request. And I, I, I mean, we might start meandering all the way through life, but when we, by the time we got to the end of that conversation, he was going to ask me for something. And generally, it was going to be money. Say, Dad, I need some money. So here's the hypothetical scenario. Let's say that my son came to me, Robert came to me, and he said, say, Dad. And after about a 20-minute conversation, he got down to, I need you to give me money. And this is how you know it's hypothetical. Let's just say that I opened up my wallet and I pulled out a $100 bill and I gave it to him. That's hypothetical. That would not happen. But let's just say, let's just say for the sake of the story that it did. So here's my son. Say, Dad, I need money. We have this long conversation. We finally get to the I need money part and I hand him a $100 bill. And he goes away ecstatic. He's thankful. He's excited. Everything's good. And a week later, we meet up again and he says, Say, Dad, I need more money. What do you think my first question is going to be? Are you kidding me, son? Didn't we just have this conversation seven days ago, like a Sabbath ago? Didn't we just have this conversation? Didn't he just come to me and ask me for money? And didn't I just put a Benjamin in your hand? Didn't I just give you a hundred bucks? Why do you want more money? What did you do with the hundred dollars I gave you seven days ago? And upon that question, hangs all the law and the prophets for him. His answer to that question is, is stunning. I mean, it's going to determine everything. So let's say that my son said to me, hey, Dad, um, it happened unto me thusly. Let's say he got biblical on me. It happened unto me thusly. The wife of your youth took thy servant, thy son, into the chariot, and we went to the portal of plenty, Costco. And as we entered into the fields of plenty, there thy son spied an open field of full of a pallet full of skittles. And thy son, being led of the Lord, made a hundred dollar investment in skittles. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Number one, I don't like skittles. Now, if we were talking about milk duds, that might be a completely different scenario. But here's my kid, and he's saying to me, I made a hundred dollar investment. I took the money that you gave me and I spent it on Skittles. How much money do you think he's going to get from me this time around? You say, well, what's the point of that story? It's hypothetical. Let me just ask you this. When I come to God and I say to God, God, I need more provision or I need more life, it's entirely appropriate, isn't it, for our Heavenly Father to wonder what we have been doing with the life and the provision he's already given? Have you been taking the life and the provision I've given you to exalt my name? Or have you been spending it over here on your own stuff? Have you been using what I've given you in terms of life and resources and strengths and gifts to extend my kingdom? Or have you been using it in your own love kingdom to build your own love kingdom? I've given you strength and life and time to do my will. Have you been doing my will or have you been doing your will? 
I mean, these are really convicting diagnostic questions. It goes way beyond Skittles, but, but the truth be known, in my life, and probably in many of your lives, we do tend to take a lot of what God gives us and spend them on our own version of Skittles. It's all about our name, our kingdom, our will. And we run out of stuff, and we come back to God, and you're like, God, I need you to do this, and God is so gracious. He's not like us. He is so gracious, and he meets our needs, and he forgives our sins. And he protects us. And we just keep going on our way until all of a sudden we come to a passage like this and Jesus says, I want to stop you for a minute and I want you to think about the fact that your Father in Heaven, when you come in to talk to Him, has stuff He wants to talk about. And it isn't about your name and it isn't about your kingdom and it isn't about your will. It's about His name and it's about His kingdom and it's about His will. And you know, as a church, it can't just be about our name. And it can't just be about our kingdom. And it can't just be about our will. It has to be about his name and about his kingdom and his will. And each of us have to come in 2022 to the Lord and say, Lord, you have given me provisions. How am I using those provisions to exalt your name, extend your kingdom, and do your will? You've put me in Palmetto Baptist Church. How am I doing that through the body of Christ that you've made me a part of? Maybe it's simply, you know, we haven't been thinking this way. Church is just something we do on the side, or it's just something we do on a Sunday morning. And God is awakening us, and he's saying, look, this is much bigger. This is my kingdom. This is my name. This is my will. And if you will live for those purposes, you can come all you want and ask for more provision and more pardon and more protection, and I will give them to you. This is an amazing text. It's a convicting text, and it's a transforming text. And I pray that as Mike comes to lead us, as we pray together, that our praying in 2022 will be shaped by these priorities. May the Lord bless you.